Welcome to episode 81 of Love That Album. Now normally, I'm hosting the show, which means I ask my wife Joanne to introduce the show, but I decided to take the month off, and then she decided to take the month off from introducing the show, so leaving me to actually do some work. So who did I leave the Love That Album Asylum in the hands of? The Real Musical Brains Trust of the program, the dynamic duo, regular show contributor Eric Reanimator-Peterson, and my see-here compadre, Ghetto Tim Merrill. They tackle a couple of albums and bands I probably would not have done off my own back. Getting their perspective is what's going to keep this show fresh. First off, they discuss The Flesh Eaters, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die from 1981, featuring three musicians I absolutely love, like Steve Berlin, yet to become a member of Los Lobos at the time of recording, though he may actually have still been with the Blasters at the time, Dave Alvin of the Blasters, and John Doe of X and a hundred other bands. Yet, they're playing music not quite like any of the bands they became famous for. The album is gloriously ragged. Comparisons are made in the show with The Cramps and Captain Beefheart. See what you think. They then go on to 1991's album by Minneapolis band Cows, called Cunning Stunts. You wouldn't want to have a case of spoonerismitis there, would you? They have a punk rock sound, but this is supposedly a more melodic approach than what they'd previously tackled before. I think their ragged version of the Midnight Cowboy theme is glorious. See what you think. Hear about Tim's tales of live cow shows and reverse strip teasers, as well as the guy's thoughts on the album itself. And now, on with the show. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Not Morris, but this is Eric Reanimator and Tim Merrill, and we are hosting Love That Album for September 2015. Howdy. Hopefully you're enjoying it this month or whenever you get around to it. Uh, Morris is uh, otherwise dis- otherwise occupied, I guess is the way to say it. So we, uh, we're going to step in and fill in, and we're going to be talking about two albums this time around. We're going to be talking about The Flesh Eaters 1981 album, a Minute to Pray, A Second to Die, and then we're going to be talking about an album from a band called Cows, called Cunning Stunts, 1992. I wanted to say something before we got right into the albums here. Uh, yesterday, actually, it was Friday, I was uh, tipped off by a good friend of mine about uh, a new documentary that just came out that's actually free to view through, uh, I think, Vimeo uh, this weekend only. And it's called Records Collecting Dust. And it's a vinyl documentary. And it's all about just record collectors and uh, your favorite albums and where you bought them, the record stores, the collecting process, all of it. Uh, There's all kinds of people that you will recognize in this documentary, including one Mr. Jello Biafra, one Mr. David Yao from the Jesus Lizard, uh, Mr. Mike Watt, the Minutemen, all kinds of people in this documentary, and it's free, absolutely free this weekend. Uh, if you go to, let me see here, recordscollectingdust.com, then you will be able to uh, check this out. 
But I mean, ah, jeez. We're going to post this up on the Love That Album uh, page right now because I figured in my uh, my uh, stupidity, I just realized I don't know when this episode is coming out, so it may not be free by the time you get this. But we're going to post it anyways early, so anyone who checks out the uh, Love That Album website this weekend can get on that. And I think even after the fact, it will only be, I think, maybe a 5 uh uh, three or four dollar rental, whatever, online. But it, I watched it last night, and it's definitely worth checking out. It's it's a blast seeing, you know, how a lot of influential musicians uh, found their feet at, through the music that they initially loved in the record stores where they got started. And you know, it's it, it's just for anybody who's a record collector, it's a real uh, warm and fuzzy feeling seeing other people and their discoveries and so many uh, nods where you say, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the one that was my starter drug and, you know, Black Sabbath or uh, anything else like that. You know, you can just see where uh, the formation of uh, a lot of people's musical tastes. But anyways, it's a, it's a neat little documentary. Very cool. I will definitely be checking it out this weekend. And we will also, uh, I will cross post it to, pop culture binge and to feed uh, feed my ears and other music related sites we hope you're enjoying the show you can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for love that album in the itunes store if you want to get in contact please email morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. I guess without further ado, we're going to move into... From 1981, The Flesh Eaters, with their album, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. So before we get into the discussion, just a little bit of background about The Flesh Eaters. They were one of the uh, West Coast early L.A. punk bands who uh, were part of that whole scene with bands like X, The Blasters, and uh, Los Lobos, and... uh, all of those bands that were in the original Decline of the Western Civilization film and, you know, the Germs, all of those good bands. Uh, what set them apart from the others is they definitely had a more kind of ramshackle, free jazz, Tom Waits, uh, Captain Beefheart kind of uh, kind of sound going on. They, they definitely had some roots rock in there. They definitely had some blues, some garage. We're not talking the kind of fast, loud, out-of-control punk of the Sex Pistols or the refined pop, but still uh, culturally relevant sensibilities of the Clash here. We're, we're talking, uh, you know, trashy magazines and throwaway culture. And in fact, the album we're going to be discussing today, which is often considered to be their best record, uh, swiped its title apparently from a 1968 Spaghetti Western of the same title. So that should kind of give you an idea of where this band is coming from. Uh, Christy, who's the main guy behind the band, was considered in a lot of ways the Bob Dylan of the West Coast punk scene as he was a writer and a poet. These days, he is a film programmer and a uh, published author who's written books mainly about the Japanese gangster films of the uh, the 50s through probably the early 80s. So, uh, without further ado, so Tim, tell me uh, what was your first exposure to the Flesh Eaters? Well, to tell you the truth, like when you said, you know, uh, you talk about punk, you know, punk to me anymore, I mean, it's it's a funny thing how it works, because when I was younger, punk was a definitive thing, I knew exactly what punk was, I could tell you through what I felt and what I knew, but as I grew older, what punk was to me became very different and it became more undefinitive and it became more harder to pinpoint because there were so many variations or so many angles and 
that people approached it from. And I think with the Flesh Eaters, to me, I would put them more... You know, I don't want to compare them really to anyone, but if I was to do that, I would put them more in lines with bands like The Cramps. Mm -hmm. Because The Cramps had that kind of, you know, uh, 50s uh, detective novel trashiness and that whole more more of a 60s aesthetic, you know, more of a 60s and 70s aesthetic than really punk. I mean, they, they were coming at it from, uh, you know, from more like people like uh, Hazel Atkins, uh, you know, more, more like people like, uh, you know, all the, um, I was going to say the 60s uh, dead teen songs yeah you know t- tell laura i love her and last kiss and all that kind of thing and and i think the flesh eaters to me were a combination of a lot of those things they weren't necessarily like you know fuck you man they were more about you know just like the uh the sordid underbelly of sitting on a on a street corner stoop and watching everything unfold or something you know like a uh a um, what's his name? Uh, uh, oh shoot! Now the detective guy. Uh, you thinking like Raymond sh- Chandler? Or- no, no. The uh, I'm having such a brain fart right now. And this is okay. so stupid. The sheriff guy, uh, uh, killer inside me. Thompson, oh, Jim Dr. Thompson. Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. They're 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 song like the lyricism of Chris D and like a lot of what they do. It reminds me of Jim Thompson, or it just kind of reminds me of that kind of, you know, gritty uh, sordidness. And what what's really funny too is also they also remind me of another band that I I've had an affinity for for many years called the Honeymoon Killers. Okay. Who actually took their name from a movie based on an actual uh, uh, serial killer case of a murderous couple. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of, you know, their uh, that kind of thing too kind of falls into the flesh eaters. Yeah. And there's and their sound. I mean, this is this is what you have to understand too that you know what punk was in the initial 70s you know was nothing that it is that we know of today i mean like you know blondie was considered punk mm-hmm. i mean devo was considered punk you know uh all there was, it was such a, it was such a wide pool to swim in yeah the older i get the more i believe that punk musically has been more about taking whatever genre it is of rock and roll and blues and then stripping it down to its basics and infusing it with an energy that and a youth and a point of view and so blondie could be punk because they were doing 60s style girl group pop but with that energy and that attitude same thing with ramones oh yeah absolutely and then you get bands like like the germs who are stripping down the sonics you know, uh-huh. and, and the, that kind of rough, you know, uh, Iggy and the Stooges sound and David Bowie sound. Right. But, and I truly believe that in the case of the Flesh Eaters, and you mentioned the Cramps, but I also think that, that it, it's fair to put both X and the Gun Club in there as probably the, the you know, th- those are the four horsemen of West Coast, late 70s, early 80s, uh, trash culture, punk rock, you know, that, that all I'd of those say, together uh, are... I'd say the Blasters, too. The blasters are definitely in there, and and maybe I would throw rank and file in there just because I have a big affinity for them, even though they had moved to Austin at that point in time. Uh-huh. But they, basically, those were the bands that were taking '50s rock and roll, classic country, classic blues, '60s garage rock, and stripping it back down to its basics and using the uh, the imagery of of uh, '50s and '60s pulp fiction and uh, you know pulp novels and trashy cinema to inform what they were doing. And actually, I would also throw uh, the early, early Wall of Voodoo in there. If anybody's uh-huh. ever listened to those early records, they're, they, they sit right alongside you know, the Cramps and the Blasters and the, the Gun Club as sure. dealing with that, that kind of pulpy subject matter. Now, one guy that I want to also tie to the Flesh Eaters, um, and he's not a West Coast guy at all, 
but a guy that's uh, near and dear to both your heart and mine, and that's one Mr. Rocky Erickson. Oh, of course. Of course. He is in the continuum. He is right there with Screaming Lord Such and, uh, you know, a few other uh, out there weirdos that, that popped up in the uh, the late 60s and into the 70s. But what Rocky Erickson had, I think, that others didn't is he had this beautiful sense of, of pop. That sure. you know, this Buddy Holly sense of pop that sure. that populated the the rough and sometimes weird and out there garage rock, you know. Sure. And I, I think it's all part of the continuum. I mentioned Captain Beefheart earlier. Yeah, you know, probably some Zappa in there. Um, yeah. definitely some J- Alice Cooper. Jay Hawkins. Almost definitely. You know, um, it's. I don't want to make it sound like it is musically a novelty act because it's not. No. However. I could totally hear the songs on this record being in the background in a 50s B film where the kids are in some Halloween club or something like that. Right. So. Or a biker movie. Yep. Yeah, oh, definitely. Additionally, I, I want to say about the music that it's kind of ramshackle and discordant, but it's got a certain energy and shuffle that holds it together. Mm-hmm. So my, my first exposure to the Flesh Eaters came... From the soundtrack to to the film Return of the Living Dead. Return of the Living Dead, yeah. It should be no yeah. surprise to anybody who right. uh, knows my musical history. And it, Not, it was one of those soundtracks that I went and I started tracking down the record. That was Enigma, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. It might have been Restless. No, it was Enigma at that time. It was Enigma, yeah, because I actually had the I had the picture disc of uh, Return of the Living Dead. And it actually had a locked-in groove at the very end. When you finished the album, it was just like brains, yep. brains, brains, and it just kept going like that until you took the needle off. It was great. Yeah, I, I actually have the, the picture disc as well, and I believe that one also has uh, has dialogue clips from the movie. Which right, fun. right, right, right. So from there, I, I kind of backtracked with the Flesh Eaters, and uh, I picked up some of their early albums, and some of them I think were uh, a little more consistent than others. But this is the one that really stands out. Um, it should also be noted, too, that a large part of the catalog of the Flesh Eaters uh, was released on SST. Yeah. And well, I think the label in itself was um, a label that actually, like, people mainly think of, you know, the Minutemen, the Meat Puppets, Husker Du, and Black Flag, like the Big Four. But there were so many... Um, experimental and just uh, wide-ranging acts that were actually released on SST, like the Universal Congress of, and uh, there was a, a lot of more jazzy or more instrumental freeform acts that came out on SST, and I think that that's why I can see the uh, the Flesh Eaters fitting in there very nicely. Yeah, this, this album came out on uh, Ruby Records, which was a subsidiary of Slash that was basically run by Chris D. Uh, right. Slash itself was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, and uh, probably when it comes to L.A. punk, before you get to SST, we're probably right. the most important label. You know, right. Danger House was another label that was around, but right, but really, Slash, Slash starting as a magazine, yes, and then progressing into the label, yeah, and then. Uh, Another band that SST had on its label was the Divine Horseman, which is kind of what the Flesh Eaters uh, morphed into during mm-hmm. the uh, the mid to late '80s, and that's a band I'm very very fond of as well. But they they were much more straight ahead cowpunk, where this this incarnation of the band, especially, is much more like I said, bluesy, trashy, uh, stomping. You know, not lo-fi because it's absolutely not lo-fi. But, but just different from what you would expect. Uh, in re-listening to this album several times in preparation for our discussion, I, I noticed the the uh, presence throughout the album of what sounds like a xylophone, but I believe it's just rhythm sticks. And that provides kind of a, a different sound than you would hear on something that would be considered a punk record in the the early 80s. There's also saxophone, there, along with the, the typical guitar, bass, and the uh, the stomp of the uh, I guess probably just the, the members of the band stomping on the ground. So the story is that 
Uh, Chris D had a bunch of songs, but he didn't have a band to record with. So he had Dave Alvin from The Blasters, he had John Doe from Axe, Steve Berlin from Los Lobos, and DJ Bonebreak, who I believe was in both X and was he in The Cramps? I might be misremembering that. No, he w he was in X, definitely. Oh, he was in X. He was, he, yeah, he drummed it. He drum I think actually he's drumming with X now. I know that he had been in a couple of the, those other other bands from that uh, that era. So they needed, uh, or Christy needed a backing band, and he called up his friends, and that's who he got. And they went into the studio and were able to put this record together pretty quickly, by all accounts. And it, it's got one of the things that I love about uh, punk records from this era, which is it's short and to the point. This thing clocks in at about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, there's not a wasted, you know, moment of, of space on it. It's, it's also the kind of record that, with the exception of maybe one or two songs, uh, mainly for me, See You in the Boneyard, that the songs don't really stand out as, as individual uh, entities, but as part of, they, they work as part of the whole of the record. Do mm -hmm. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really uh, free-flowing record. It goes right, you know, right from. I mean, you can play the tracks separately, sure, but like you're saying, you know, they, you know, they really don't work on their own. But together, um, I think it really lays the foundation of a of a neat little soundtrack for a movie that doesn't exist. Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, and I should also note that uh, Christy, one of his, I guess, collections of stories, and he actually has a, sh a story called. A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die, that is inspired by this record. And the stories, I believe, were written in the last five or six years. So this is something that he still carries with him in some way, shape, or form. Um, I don't know. What else is there to say about this record? Uh, I, I think we both recommend it. I, I know that I'm a, I'm a big fan. I know there's been a recent reissue of this on vinyl that I would like to get my hands on. Right. Uh, and that, uh, you know, this is something that um, all right, let me back up. There's, I've had an ongoing discussion with Morris, kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit about noise rock and about things that are a little more noisy than the, the well-produced pop and singer-songwriter stuff that this show tends to gravitate towards. Oh, we're going to get into that. <laughs> we will. We will. But um, there, there is... You know, with something that's abrasive and that is not necessarily super accessible, you, you know, it's baby steps. And that's what Morris has said to me is, you know, baby steps. And I think that in, in learning or developing an appreciation for noise and di things that are discordant and that don't necessarily follow the, the strict rules of pop music with, you know, uh, choruses and refrains and, you know, intros and all that kind of stuff, that I think this record might be an ideal first step for somebody who is looking to start exploring you know things that are a little less outside of that that pop comfort zone or that structured comfort zone sure because you know i think that um i'm gonna get into it with the next album that we're looking at mm -hmm. but to tell you the truth i think sometimes the most rewarding listens are those that you approach at first and you're really kind of apprehensive about and then you know you but you know there's something there you just kind of haven't deciphered yet what what's in front of you you know and the more you pour over it i've always looked at jazz that way where you know a lot of and i'm not trying to be ageist here or anything but a lot of younger people might listen to jazz and say Oh, this is just a bunch of, you know, unstructured noise or a bunch of people beating things together. Or there's nothing really here. And then all of a sudden, one day in their ears, all the tumblers fall into place and it's unlocked. And they're like, oh, I get it. And then it's like, bang. And then suddenly, you know, you learn to appreciate it, you know. And it's not for everybody. But like I say, a lot of times uh, there are things. You know, people are greatly rewarded if they just continue to keep at things and keep listening. I mean, initially, you know, to tell you a secret, uh, you know, to uh, open the door, so to speak, 
when I first heard Captain Beefheart back in the day, I couldn't stand it. I thought it was the biggest bunch of bullshit ever that Don was doing, and now he's like, I love the man to death, you know, like I love everything he's ever done. Mm -hmm. But initially, to me, it was just so off-putting. But then over time, you know, through an appreciation of the blues and Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and a lot of other people like that, it bridged over into Beefheart, and then I got to see what Beefheart was doing. And I think, you know, that's that's an important thing, like I said, you know, taking the time to delve into things, even if upon initial listen, it doesn't really hit you. Yeah, I think the same goes for films, uh, that sometimes you'll watch something initially and just not get it. Uh-huh. Or you'll think it's okay. But it's only on rewatches or re-listens to to challenging uh, art that you start to peel away the layers if you have the interest in doing that to kind of right. take it apart. And I do think that it, it does take a certain familiarity with what it is that they are riffing on or what it is that is being referenced for, for you really to, to understand what's going on with both movies and music. But in this case, we're talking about music. And I'll, I'll be forthright in saying that the, the Flesh Eaters is a, is a band that I really wanted to like a lot. And I had to pick up several of their albums and, you know, buy and sell several of their albums before it finally got to the point where it's like, yeah, this is really good. And even to this day, uh, their earlier album, which I do still own, um, I don't I don't necessarily sit around and listen to it. I don't think it's a great album. Some of their later albums I don't, I don't uh, love unreservedly. And I, you know, I think one of the reasons that I, I wanted to bring this album to the table for this episode is like i said i think it's a good gateway for people who want to step outside of that comfort zone of the uh you know the the punk rock or the you know pop or the rock and roll or whatever they've been listening to and you know especially i would say if you're a fan of, of tom waits or warren zevon or a guy like that um stan ridgeway that this would be an ideal next step in exploring what is out there Right. Definitely, definitely. So any any uh any further thoughts or comments about this this record? Um Um Christie is an interesting dude. And I mean like he like you mentioned earlier, you know, he had uh, he's really a smart guy when it comes to film. I mean he, he's an actual uh, he's an expert on uh, Japanese uh, gangster films of the 60s and 70s. He's written several books. Uh, he is he's very astute when it comes to cinema. And I think a lot of having that film background also too kind of uh, incorporated into his music. And I think a lot of his music, like I said before, you know, soundtracks to films that don't exist. But I think that, you know, he's he's taken not so much influence from music in his past as well, but also music from film. Yeah. And and I think, you know, when you, like I said earlier about biker, biker films, you know, if you look at like Satan Sadists or some of the uh, AIP films of the 60s, the late 60s, early 70s and things like that, you know, I can see uh, some of you know, that influence of that kind of music in, you know, both The Flesh Eaters and The Divine Horseman. But this album in particular, to me, is, you know, like you say, um, a step towards, you know, a more a more experimental or more um, open uh, sound that they're working on. Most definitely. Um, I, I would also note that, that Christy has been involved in film, and he's actually the star of a film that's in the Criterion Collection called Border Radio, which of course is right. a title from the great song by the Blasters, and it also features John Doe in one of his early film roles, and it's definitely a black and white uh, 1980s punk you know, crime noir, and it's, it's not a perfect film, but it's a very interesting film, and uh, it is uh, the first film by Alison Anders who went on to do a, another really... Uh, interesting film called Food, Gas, and Lodging, which is has a title taken from a uh, 1980s uh, Paisley Underground song. That's a totally different story that right. we're not going to go into now. So, no, I think that... Wasn't there... 
wasn't there that film? I think the Flesh Eaters or, or Chris D had also worked on the soundtrack. There was that film with John Doe. I forget the name of the film where he had his buddy's ashes in the gas tank. Uh, that is called... <laughs> and I have seen this film a couple of times. Uh, Roadside Prophets. And Roadside Prophets. one of the Beastie Boys. Right. And, and I... I think that he was also involved in part of that soundtrack as well, but I could be wrong. I would not be surprised at all. They have been uh, those those bands, the um, X, the Blasters, and the Flesh Eaters, have been very intertwined uh, throughout the whole. Oh yeah, they're all proverbial pieces yeah. of pot. And, and the Cramps as well, because Kid Congo Powers has been playing with uh, the reinvigorated uh, Flesh Eaters as of late. So, um, right. and they, I should mention that in the last year or two, they have been out there playing shows and doing stuff. So, you know, if you're on the West Coast or wherever, and you get a chance to check them out. Highly recommended. And once again, I would say that if, if you like this record or if you like the cramps or you, you, uh, you know, you like X that, you know, you should check out those early Wall of Voodoo records. You should check out the early gun club records. Actually, you should check out any gun club records. Uh, they're a band that I think we're going to need to cover at some point in time. Oh, big time Miami. Yeah, there's also, yeah. a, uh, recently there was a great documentary about the gun club that popped up on YouTube that's well worth checking out. So at any rate, um, any, uh, I would say that this is this is the, the Flesh Eaters record to, uh, to track down and check out. And if you just want to check it out, I, I believe it is on Spotify, but it's also in full on YouTube. And you can just uh, put it on and fold laundry or jump around the room or... You know, barbecue steaks in the backyard, or whatever it is you need to do. Have a couple beers. Say, uh, right. it's it's it, it's a gr- to me, it's a great record, and I think it's an overlooked record. And uh, one of the reasons that, the, as I said, that I picked it was I wanted to kind of push the boundaries of the kind of music that we talk about on this show. But um, right, you know, check it out. I would never say. Hey, all you podcast listeners, here's an update. See here. We know some of that bad brown acid has been going around, but we've got an alternative. See here. Have these headphones here. Throw them on. See here. Movies for your mind. See here. See here podcast. We discuss music-related films once a month. Find us on iTunes or at seehere, that's S-E-E-H-E-A-R, dot podbean, dot com. Just relax, listen, and float downstream. See here. And in the spirit of that, we, we can move on to the next record. So um, what happened was I picked this record. Or I, I had a couple records, and I sent Tim a message saying, these are the records I think I want to cover, and this is the one I'm leaning towards, which was the Flesh Eaters. And he said, okay, let's do that. And I said, well, what do you want to pick? And he came up with the cow, or cows. They're just called cows, not the uh, cows. Cow. Cows, 1992 yeah. record, Cunning Stunts. This was released on uh, Amphetamine Reptile Records, which if you know of them, they were, or are, a, a label out of the Upper Midwest. I believe they're currently out of Chicago. and Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis, okay. And yeah. they, uh, they specialized in kind of uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, experimental noise rock, the most famous of which probably is the Jesus Lizard. So... Actually, Jesus, Jesus Lizard was uh, touch and okay. go. They were out of Chicago. For some reason, I thought. But, uh, go ahead. No, um, Amphetamine Reptile, AMREP, as they're uh, commonly known as, they've been around. Actually, AMREP's the mastermind of one guy, Tom Hazelmeyer, who's an ex American Marine who actually started uh, AMREP from his uh, footlocker while he was still in the military. And. Uh, he basically just had a band called the Halo of Flies, and the Halo of Flies basically he wanted to, you know, just start pressing vinyl of his own band. But then he also started seeing other bands that he quite enjoyed, 
in the Minneapolis area and beyond. But AMREP, to me, they are basically, you know, the uh, brother from another mother of labels like Touch and Go. And people might say Sub Pop, but Sub Pop was way more uh, varied than AMREP. And I mean, AMREP was, you know, is a very varied label as well. But I mean, AMREP, though, you know an AMREP band before you even, you know, know they're on AMREP. You hear it. And AMREP was, you know, notorious for putting out bands like, you know, The Unsane and Helmet and uh, Hammerhead, The Cows, The Melvins. You know, there were so many, so many bands that came out of the AMREP empire, it's not even funny. And they're still continuing to this day. Um, Tom Hazelmeyer, I mean, over 25 years later, is still, you know, putting out amazing um material not just in the bands but also in their packaging and you know he actually does these uh, linographs um, you know uh, uh, carvings linoleum carvings or wood block carvings and if you know I don't know if you've seen the Merricks oh, yeah. the um, they're beautiful they're absolutely beautiful the, the packaging that AMREP does these days is, is second to none because it's all hand done and you know all of the their stuff goes like hotcakes now because you know it's a real piece of work you know it's not just you know somebody slapping up some image on a you know on a little piece of cardboard and, and shooting out you know a seven inch with it I mean a lot goes into what they do and, and you can tell uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, Hayes he really really gave a shit about everything that he put into AMREP you know and he still does Going back to the cows, they were one of the most notorious bands to come out of Minneapolis in the 80s. And they were a band who really didn't sit out in the middle of the field, <laughs> so to speak. You either loved them or you absolutely detested them. And that was kind of uh, the, you know, the opinion in Minneapolis of the day, where you either got what they were doing or you absolutely just thought that they were just terrible and noise. And it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, uh, expanding your boundaries. They started in 1987, and it was uh, Sandra Rutmanis, Kevin Rutmanis, uh, Thor Eisenstrager, and their drummer Norm Rogers. And what's funny to note is that Norm Rogers actually was their singer initially, and then he went to drum for the Jayhawks who are kind of a, a more well-known band to come out of Minneapolis. Yeah. And then he actually quit the Jayhawks and came back. But then the Cows decided that they needed a new singer. So they actually brought in a guy named Shannon Selberg. Now, Shannon Selberg is... <laughs> he he is an anomaly, uh, to say the least. He To me, he's probably one of the best front men of any punk band that I've ever seen. And but his character in, in itself, I mean, Eric, you've seen the movie Wild at Heart. Oh yeah. Right? Okay. Well, then you know uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Bobby Peru. Yes, indeed. If you can imagine Bobby Peru as a lead singer of a band, and you know this guy with a cowboy hat on, usually coming on stage shirtless, with these uh, homemade magic marker tattoos that he's actually drawn all over his body coming on stage sometimes with a bullwhip usually with his bugle and you know like the one time I saw the cows in Detroit uh, he came out on stage with a little Prince Valiant blonde wig and he was wearing orange long johns and before the band even started he just got on stage and did a handstand and just basically did a handstand for a minute and a half while the band just started jamming. And then the next thing you know, he falls down, hits the ground, hits the stage floor, and pulls out his bugle and just starts going to town. But before I get ahead of myself, I should describe the cows, their sound. Um, The first time I'd heard the cows was probably about 88 or 89, I think. Um, right around the time that their second album came out, Daddy Has a Tail. And what was funny was back in the day when people used to swap cassettes, 
uh, a lot of times, you know, um, things like Maximum Rock and Roll or other fanzines at the time, you could, you know, make connections with other music fans and you could swap tapes. And I used to love, you know, just writing somebody in another area of, of the world that I thought, you know, had an interesting music scene. And then they would basically send me a compilation or something that they've been listening to. And then I'd send them something back from Canada. So a guy in Minneapolis area had sent me some of the cow stuff. And initially I thought that, you know, the tape was fucked up. Because it sounded to me like, one, it sounded like it had been recorded in a bucket. And it it sounded basically like, you know... uh, they were trying to do something. I could tell that there was something going on there. But it was almost like it was going on... You know when there's a really great party in the apartment next door to yours? And you can hear it through the mm-hmm. wall? And you're thinking, damn, man, they're really tearing it up in there. But you can't really quite hear everything? It was it was that kind of thing. It was that kind of feeling where I knew man, there's something going on here, but this sounds like shit, you know? Like, I mean, it's just like, if they get this thing together, this is going to be killer, you know? And I think for those that, you know, stuck with the cows, I mean, like, their sound was beyond muddy, the initial records that came out. But that's what made it so glorious, was that it was just like, you know, it was like a band basically trying to play themselves out of quicksand. Air, you know, or mm-hmm. tapioca pudding, and it and it was just wonderful. But uh, again, it's not a, not a sound for everybody, you know. And then and then uh, they start doing covers of like "Shaking All Over," and they you know they did a cover of uh, uh, "Kumbaya," and they called it Joan Baez. And there's a real sense of humor too to this band too, kind of a really uh, sarcastic little uh, juvenile snotty sense of humor. And I think some of it comes off as, as really uh, fun, but a lot of people might just look at it as a, as a shtick, and it's really not a shtick, you know? It, it's just kind of like, uh, these are a bunch of guys that really wanted to play what they wanted to play, but they also wanted to have fun doing it. So they take a lot of liberties with what they do. Uh, leading up to Cunning Stunts. Cunning Stunts came out in 1992, as you mentioned earlier. It was recorded by Ian Burgess uh, in France. This was a lead-up album to their album Pistica that came out in 91. Mm-hmm. And again, Pistica, you know, a lot of people kind of got the cows wrong when that album came out because, you know, the title and the album cover, it was the symbol, a combination of the peace symbol and the swastika. And everybody, you know, thought, what the hell are these guys on about? You know, the album's called Pistica. <laughs> but what they what they were trying to do was make a statement saying, shit, you know, all these people say they want peace, and all these people try to go out and achieve peace, but in doing so, they actually become fascist, you know? And they, they actually become, you know, become uh, everything that they detest in, in trying to basically obtain what they want to obtain, you know? And what I find is that that's kind of very prophetic when you look at what's going on today. In our politically correct society, right? Yeah, it, to me, it's part and parcel of the uh, Dead Kennedys comment on California Uberalis, which is, oh be, sure, beware of fascism in all of its guises, even when it tells you it, sure. it's doing the right thing for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. But the, and this was in '91 when Pistica came out. But anyway, we're not talking about Pistica. We're talking about Cunning Stunts. This album, to me, was the pinnacle of the cows. Uh, this was the album when everything came in, all the numbers came up for the lottery. You know, they had a great recording engineer, they had amazing sounds, everybody was just full throttle on this album. And I have to say, like, the album starts off with an absolute bang. There's a track called Heave Ho, and it's hilarious because... The whole album begins with the sound of a baby being smacked on the ass at birth, and it cries. And then you hear this Eddie Eddie Van Halen tremolo fingering, kind of guitar fingering, and it just blasts off from there. And the initial riff of the first song is a trumpet solo. Yep. Oh, sorry, a bugle solo. And it's and it's Shannon Selberg playing a bugle just like it's a guitar. 
and and it's just and it's amazingly funky, but it's just, it's at the same time it's just so obtruse and angular. It, it's not even funny. Mm-hmm. And anyway, uh, it just sounds like a five a.m. drunken reverie on a military base. You know, like a bunch of uh, soldiers or sailors coming home hammered, and Buddy getting up just as a break of dawn, getting home just as the sun comes up, and pulling out the bugle. And just going to town on it, you know, and with a, with a punk band behind him. It's hilarious. On the next track, Walks Alone, was a track I, I sent to you, got yep. you to listen to. And I was saying it's very reminiscent of uh, the guitar playing to me was uh, Billy Zoom. And it, it just really got, it had a, a complete, to me, like an X feeling or a cowpunk mm-hmm. feeling to it, as well as hardcore element. Uh what did you think about that? I enjoyed it. I once again, this is this is an album like the Flesh Eaters album that, that I did not necessarily pick up on individual tracks, but I heard it as a whole piece, and, and that mm-hmm. I, I I enjoyed it. it to me, uh, it sounds very much like um, late '80s uh, Seattle bands like Green River or the U Men. Or uh, mm-hmm. any of those, and even some Nirvana in there, definitely. I heard some Nirvana. Um, and I mean early Nirvana. I mean sub-pop era Nirvana. That right. uh, It right. sounds like they were, they were tapping into that energy and that noise that bands in places like Chicago, Seattle, Minneapolis, Detroit to a certain degree, uh, were, were tapping into at the time. And uh, yeah, I, I think what, what made it stand out for me was that the the use of the bugle which brings a you know a horn sound to the record without it being necessarily ska or big band and and the fact that uh after doing a little research on this record it appears that they used a a new producer for the first time that that got the uh the sound quality up and also that there was a um a kind of uh you know started to bring uh, melody and Something that was a little more cohesive than what I'm reading about their previous oh, yeah. albums to the sound to make it a, a little more accessible. Abs- well, that's just it. Is I mean, like you know, what's really funny? Like I was saying, uh, when you listen to this album, this was their shining moment. And this was the album where you know there's there's a lot of harmonies mm-hmm. on this record, believe it or not. And and Shannon actually croons on uh, tracks like Mr. Cancelled, which is a pretty amazing song in itself, but. After, you know, but it was Ian Burgess, their uh, engineer, who actually, you know, when he got the sound down, and then when you go back and you listen to the earlier, more abrasive records and, you know, the more sludgy records, you can see what they were trying to do. They just didn't have the sound, yeah. you know, you know, and, 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 and like with the cows, like you can see the evolution and you can see where how they came out of the primordial muck and, uh, you know, but... This album is—it's just amazing. And the one thing I have to really say, though, is that yes, there is that you know that noise uh, element of you know stuff like Green River and the U Men and that. But the guitarist on this, uh, the Cow's guitarist Thor Eisenstrager, man, I cannot you know uh, over overstate this guy enough, man. Like he was a fucking genius. Like this guy was amazing because he was at the point of where. When you when you listen to the songs, they're so uh, catchy, but at the same time they're so obtuse. Yeah. Like you know, and, and the riffs are just so off kilter, but they're beautiful. I, and I mean, it's like you know, it's like he's trying to intentionally play out a tune. And I and I kind of uh, I kind of equated almost to as strange as it sounds, uh, the French Canadian uh, metal band Voivod. Mm-hmm. Their uh, their guitar player Piggy was also known for kind of creating his own chords and kind of creating his own uh, dissonant riffs, and it was completely unique. And I think what's really funny is that you know to try to uh, duplicate that, you know, for example, you know, a Voivod cover band or something, it would be really difficult because you know there's no tablature for what he did. He just did what mm-hmm. he did, and it was the same thing with the cows. I mean, Thor with his guitar. And also Kevin Rotmanis with the bass, what they brought to the table was a unique sound that really couldn't be duplicated. Because when you're watching these guys on stage, 
you're thinking, man, you know, it looks like these guys are playing loaded, but they're not. They're they're dead on doing what they do, and it was you know, and it was just practice and practice and practice and practice, and then you know, over time, the cows went from being like you know what many consider to be the worst band in Minneapolis to the best band in Minneapolis, and you know, and it was all. The joke was on everyone who thought that you know these guys didn't have it together, big you know. But it, but then when you start to realize what they were doing, you know, bringing in uh, elements of jazz, bringing in elements of country punk, the blues, mm-hmm. uh, all of it, and mixing it together. Yet, you know, there's no one specific influence that really stands out. It's their definitive sound. Yeah, and uh, I would say that the what I think one of the reasons we we paired these two records together is because uh, both of these bands were, were taking influences that we have discussed, but making it their own. You, you can't point to a lot of bands that sound like the Flesh Eaters or sound like Cows. And I think right. there's there's uh, something to be said for the fact, as I noted earlier, the Flesh Eaters just had this, this record reissued and there's still an interest in the band today. And this right. record that we're talking about, Cunning Stunts, is actually out of print and mm-hmm. copies of it go for some pretty good good dough these days if you have them. It, right. I mean, this not this is the the story of seventies, eighties, nineties music, which is if you had a uh, little oddball release that didn't hit it with the masses, but kind of developed a cult following, that people are still picking up on those records, and those those records are going for some dollars. That oh, for sure, for sure. Well, actually. The, the Cows, their first album, uh, Tain Urbis, Tain Plunum, came out on a Minneapolis, small Minneapolis label called Treehouse Records. Yeah. And what what actually happened was um, they did their second album with Amra, but that first album is a bitch to find now. Like, you cannot find that album. It's very, very hard to find, you know. And if you if those that have it appreciate it and those that don't, well, they, they basically own copies, you know, on cassette or or a CD or whatever, but I mean, for those that, and I always hate to recommend, you know, an inferior uh, sound quality, but uh, for those that are curious about the cows, the full album, Cunning Stunts, is up on YouTube, for those of you who want to uh, wade in and give it a listen, but I mean, you know, this album is like one of my money go-to albums, I keep coming back to this album, because there's just so many, like, amazing tracks on this and, and, and like Eric said you know it just flows and it just goes from one track to the next to the next and there's no dead tracks on this album it's it's just all killer you know no filler mm-hmm. yeah definitely definitely this like I said there's there's uh, not necessarily individual songs that I could pick out but at the same time uh, it doesn't sound like one continuous song it just flows it, it has a uh, it has an energy and it has a a kind of uh, drive to it that hooks you in. Right, absolutely, absolutely. There's more hooks on this album than a tackle box, I'm not kidding you. Uh, the one thing I wanted to say too, one of my favorite tracks that they ever did was on this album. It's uh, it's a song called It's Mine. And it's it's kind of a total piss take about capitalism. And it's, you know, and, and the lyrics are amazing. And it's just like, if you can lay eyes on it, it's mine. It's mine. If you can drink or steal it, it's mine. It's mine. And it's basically, you know, this whole attitude of, you know, uh, the, whole, the whole capitalist construct, you know? Yeah. If you're, if, if you're, you know, the song's like, if you're some commie scum that wants to share and hand it out, remember, it's mine. It's mine, you know? And it, it's just, that's, you know, that attitude is, you know, I mean, I would love to see somebody like, you know, uh, uh, dub over a Donald Trump uh, interview uh, or a Donald Trump speech with this track because it's just perfect. I mean, a lot of what the cows were talking about, and then they weren't overtly a political band, mind you, but it was just kind of wry observations, you know, that uh, what they saw. This is socio-political rather than just political. It's not. Yeah, it, right. It's taking right. on the the society and the culture rather than the individuals who are the uh the the name check idols for w- whatever social ill that it is you're railing against 
Well, it was kind of, I, I kind of take it from the perspective of a guy sitting at the bar where the TV's on behind the bar and he's watching things and then he's watching people around the bar and he's making up stories of the guy and the girl in the corner getting in a fight and then he's watching the news for a second and then making a, a point about what's on the news and then he's making a point about the bartender and then by the end he's had so much to drink they're throwing him out and he's got to deal with the police, yep. right? I mean, like that's that's to me like the whole perspective of of where they're coming from it's just that you know the fly on the wall in an outhouse yep. you know so uh getting towards wrapping this up i will say that this this is a band that i whose name i'd heard but who records i'd never checked out um i listened to this album several times uh since tim and i decided to cover it and it's one of those as we spoke about earlier, that, that to me is going to require me to listen to you more and more to get more and more out of. And it's it's definitely something that I'm keeping in my rotation of music that I want to listen to. And actually right. on pulling back the curtain just a little bit, you know, we talked about this being on YouTube. So my YouTube watch later list would go from uh, the Flesh Eaters to, the, the, to Cows and then the next album I put on there, which is something that I also need to listen to much more, is the first issue, Public Image Limited, which maybe in some ways is, is the grandfather of the uh, the noise punk mainstream, I would oh, say. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I would say Public Image Limited, The Fall, I would say, you know, Gang of Four. Yep. Because believe it or not, there is there is some definite elements of Gang of Four and PIL in the cows, in in the angular rhythms and, and I mean just the uh, the idea of, of taking standard music or standard rhythms and trying to distort them or approach them in completely from a completely different angle. Yeah, most definitely. So I would say that uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the material that we cover on, on Love That Album and that Morris covers is more 70s singer-songwriter oriented, but Tom Waits is, is definitely a touchstone for a lot of people. And if you are into Tom Waits or Nick Cave, uh, or the birthday party of Nick Cave's earlier band, that that both of these records are records that you might find uh, of interest and accessible and are a, a way to step into that, that space that is kind of post-punk noise and playing with uh, roots rock. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So uh, I guess, uh, you know, we rec we both recommend these records. And uh, um, I mean, I, do you have anything else to say about about either of the records? No, I mean, I, I'd say like I, everything that you said was pretty much it, you know. But again, I urge everyone to, you know, dig in, even if it's not your taste. You know, I mean, not everybody loves uh, caviar right from the get go, you know, or liver and onions or but once you like Christian ginger ale there you go but it, after a while you know who knows it might grow on you yep so uh, coming up um, there will be a episode or an episode of the compilation edition of uh, love that album in the month of September I don't know if it's going to drop before or after this episode um, as I was on this episode I did not record a album that I love segment um, if you guys want a recommendation for another record to go check out, I would say track down a copy of Call of the Wild by um, Wall of Voodoo and check that one out. Uh, Morris may or may not be adding a uh, Album I Love segment. We'll have to find out. That will be a surprise for all of us. But uh, mm -hmm. until next time, Tim, thank you for uh, recording with me. And No, thank you, uh, Eric. It's always yes, a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll be back at some point to offer up some more challenging music. Right, we'll and I'd like to thank the audience out there for listening to us, and uh, and I'd like to thank them for uh, putting up with us because eventually, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm wondering how many people are going to go back and listen to these two albums and go, "What the hell are these guys on about, man? Like, what the?" As always, if if you, know, you like yeah. these records, or you you have a comment, or if uh, you check them out and are like, "What the hell are you guys talking about?" Hit us up on the Facebook page. I'll be more than happy right. to. Uh, to have a back and forth you know in fact we could, we'd love right. to see that we encourage Most it definitely thanks so uh you know until next time everybody uh until next time everybody have a good whatever day night evening take care yeah take care out there play safe
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.